Welcome to the Safety Talks podcast presented by Safopedia.com, empowering the workplace with free health and safety information. I'm your host, Pat Robinson. Safety Talks seeks to educate and inform through our discussions with experts and influencers in all aspects of occupational health and safety. We cover current practices and new developments in emerging technologies, management systems, legislation, and safety best practices. Now, to today's guest. Upcoming on Safety Talks is part two of my discussion with Chris Ward. In today's session, we dive into the journey, the practical steps and the critical pieces of implementing ISO 45001, the broad strokes and the key takeaways of today's session, management engagement and what management commitment looks like, the aspects of effective worker participation, what evidence of performance is required to meet ISO standards, the benefits and perils of outsourcing, and finally, the issues related to pre-qualification of supply chains. Now, my conversation with Chris Ward. So let's talk about accreditation. So an organization seeking accreditation in any ISO standard, uh, this one included, is, is strictly voluntary. That said, tell us about the rate of adoption of HSE integrated management standards in general and your thoughts on the growth potential of this particular standard now that as a global thing it's been established and there will be of course um, many organizations that are currently accredited to 18,001 transitioning over to this one. The data about the number of organizations that uh, operate to these standards is unclear. There's, a, there's knowledge about those who are certified because certificates are issued and uh, then some data is collected centrally. But many organisations will work to the standard, but they won't be accredited or certified. That wasn't their intention, or if it was their intention, they may well have given up before they've gone for accreditation. So it's difficult to put a, a figure on how many organizations are working to all these standards but what we can do is identify how many certificates are issued so we wanted to talk about the the route uh, let me just first of all talk about the numbers so we know that there's nine for nine thousand or nine hundred uh, but nine thousand uh, there are over 1.1 million organizations certified to nine thousand is over 360,000 certified to 14,001. And it's known that there's over 100,000 who are certified to 18,001, which, by the way, is not an ISO standard. So that that figure comes from BSI because it's a BSI standard. So if we're looking at the potential marketplace, shall we say, for 4,501, I think you're looking at a potential of over a million organizations who may transit from 9,000 or integrate 45 into their 9,000 and 14,000. It goes without saying that because it's an integrated management standard, they've got 9,000, they've got 14,000, they've got the systems in place, they've got the desire to show good governance, there will be a drift of 45 
uh, as well. I'm sure of that. Having said that, we've got all these organisations paddling furiously under the water. We'll not go for certification. They'll be happy to demonstrate that they have that standard and they're working towards it. They can, in actual fact, self-declare. I'll come on to their routes of certification and declaration later. Do you have a sense, Chris, that you've been involved with implementations for quite a long time? Do you get a sense for uh, companies that would be sufficiently interested in an ISO standard and in, in, in say perhaps uh, an 18001 and be doing, as you suggest, their level best to comply and they actually have uh, done a good job sort of implementing these things. And is there any sort of reference points, maybe causal factors or various things that might happen at the organizational level where they say, geez, you know, we're doing all these things. Why don't we go for accreditation? And what's meant with the term self-declaration that you just mentioned? Can I come on to that last point first? And uh, sure. what we, what we um, can demonstrate is a, a typical path towards certification. But at each of these levels, at each of these stages, the organization does not have to go any further. As we mentioned, it's all voluntary. So the organization is expected to undertake an audit. That's the requirement of the standard. Uh, that audit, that it will be a stage one audit and if that audit shows them that they've reached an acceptable level of compliance to the standard they can self-declare or self-determine that they comply with the standard and that's what's known as a stage one audit now the $64,000 question is what stage do they need to get to to say that they've achieved I think from an auditor's point of view they need to have got something in place. They'll need to have planned it and implemented that plan. Therefore, if they've implemented the plan, they'll be doing. So they'll be doing, they've got through the planning stage, they've got through the doing stage. Now they've got to check that their plan is being implemented and achieving improvement or identifying that they need to improve. They need to have got to the stage that they're checking their performance. And if they get to that stage, an auditor would determine that they've reached an acceptable level of, shall we say, compliance to the standard. The act stage part, of course, is all about improving, isn't it? It's all about finding out how well your implementation was being delivered uh, and where there are weaknesses, uh, strengthen them, and when there are opportunities for improvement, improve them. And so that's the acting stage. So to sum up, a stage one audit would determine whether you've got to the check stage. And if you've got to the check stage, you can self-verify. Similarly, if the audit is stage two or stage three, stage two audit uh, would be through a supplier or a consumer or a customer with whom you have a business relationship. Quite often it's a client. Um, and the client will audit the supplier. It necessarily, it will be an audit by that external organisation. And uh, again, if they... Uh, the organization's reached a stage of good performance, that client can declare through a stage two audit that they're conforming to the standard. Uh, just another point about stage one, it can either be an internal audit or an external audit that determines stage one. Uh, and a stage three audit is through a third party, an external auditor and an external audit can declare that the organization 
is working to 4501. They don't necessarily have to supply or have certification. But if that's an external auditor and the certification process is pursued, the organisation can become registered through a stage three audit. The registration or certification has to be declared by an organisation that's been accredited. So it, it may sound a little bit complicated. You're going all the way from stage one, two and three and there are various sort of subparts of these various stages. But the top of the pyramid for an organisation is certification or registration by an accredited auditor who's been accredited by a certification body. I think we've got all the terminology in there, Pat. I won't go any further at this particular stage in describing the path. There was a question of what sort of organisation may well wish to go down this route. And I think that depends to some extent on where they sit now. If they're not working to a management system standard, they'll need some advice and competence to adopt 45,001. This can be done internally and externally. They may well have their own or, uh, advice that's already implemented 9,000 or 14,000. Well, now they obviously want some competent advice about health and safety as well. And uh, they should be seeking to have a competent auditor. And that can be somebody internally or externally. And if they're going for a competent auditor, they need to be certified or registered. There are various different registration schemes around the world. One which is very popular is in the International Registration of Certified Certificated Auditors, okay? but there are others as well. Okay, let's move on to this next question. Over the years of managing implementations, you have, have you identified key success factors that organizations that have done well with 18,001 or 45,001 have in common? The simple answer to that is that they have to have a determined uh, and competent health and safety professional within their organization who has got good influencing skills because they can be the ones that provide the catalyst for a successful adoption of a standard. That said, that safety professional has got to persuade top management. They've got to persuade their colleagues, their peers, other management functions, and so on, to uh, go along with what historically has been quite a bureaucratic sort of process. Uh, this is where 45,000 is, is slightly different. It's, it's, as we mentioned, it's not going to have the procedures, it's going to have the process. So that safety professional has got to get top management commitment. They've got to, uh, top management's got to accept their responsibility and they've got to be accountable. And they've got to have a supporting culture to have a successful adoption of a standard. However, without top management, leadership, commitment, responsibilities and accountability, you can still get the badge. Because if that safety professional is, has got the driving determination, they will produce the procedures and the, and the paperwork and um, the information to persuade auditors that they've done sufficient. What I'm flagging up here, Pat, is there are those organisations that acquire certification, but they don't truly believe in what they've achieved. However, 
with 45,001, with its emphasis on top management, that won't be the case. Those organisations who don't truly, truly believe or can't truly demonstrate they're fully behind the standard will not uh, achieve certification. The other key factor in gaining success is under the heading of you need to get everybody on side to truly believe in what they're doing. And again, let's talk about the, those organisations who truly believe that the standard is good for them. They will get full participation and consultation from and with their workers at all levels. Traditionally, though, health and safety management standards and health and safety has been about trying to get compliance from those uh, lower down the hierarchy. It's quite simply put, is to try and get people to put their protective clothing on to use the control systems and so on and so forth. 45,000 one is going to be slightly different because everybody's a worker at all levels in the hierarchy and they need to get the participation and, 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 and support of middle management, supervisory level, as well as top management. A third area where organisations have had success in achieving the likes of 18,001 is that they put into effect the policies uh, and the objectives of their organisation, that the two are conterminous and synchronised. Uh, again, quite often organisations will have wonderful policies, but they don't deliver on them, don't implement them, uh, and people don't truly believe in them. Those organisations that can say they fully adopt uh, and implement policies are those who are going to be successful. 45,001 emphasises continual improvement. But before you get continual improvement, you've got to know how you're performing. And those organisations who know how they're performing and truly know how they're performing are, are those who are going to be successful because they will see the benefits, their business benefits and ethical benefits of what they've been achieving by assessing their compliance performance. And if an organisation has got sophisticated management systems and that they are truly work together as a, as a cohort and as one unit to meet the objectives, the common objectives of their business, whether it's delivering a service or whether it's manufacturing cars, their management processes will be already be integrated and there will be that common goal that's brought about through integration. So those five areas, Pat, it goes without saying, almost like motherhood and apple pie, if you can do those five things, you're going to be successful candidates for 4,501. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's a, a tall order. There's a, a lot of um, important things in there. There's one particular one I, I wanted to revisit, Chris, and it was your comment regarding, uh, well, conceptually, what I, I took out of the comments were this difference between sort of arm's length management support for an initiative, and in this case, we're talking 45,001, versus really being in the midst of it and, and truly feeling it. So I want to talk first about the mechanism within 45,001 to determine uh, management commitment, because I agree, there's a difference between a CEO signing off on a policy and going out and saying the right things from a leadership point of view versus being uh, heavily invested in the culture and all the things that are necessary uh, to bring um, 
a fairly ambitious initiative like 45,001. First to the implementation phase, and I think as you mentioned earlier, implementation is one thing. Ongoing improvement, measurement, stewardship are, are another. So um, if you could comment a little bit on that, but I, I just wanted to make just kind of a bit of an analogy. I was at a, a safety conference last week uh, on Thursday and Friday, and there was a, a presentation there, uh, a video from a lawyer in Australia, and he was talking about this this concept of sort of arm's length support for health and safety initiatives by executive management. And his comment was sort of in the, in terms of directed towards this seemingly overwhelming stewardship to lagging indicators, frequency rates, OSHA rates, start rates, these kinds of things. And uh, he indicated that um, an overwhelming amount of emphasis by management on these lagging indicators is in fact a, a form of negligence, his term, a form of negligence in that it sort of creates a management group that is somehow in some ways incurious about the process that leads to the scoreboard. If you accept that OSHA rates and so on are your scoreboard, there is a process and there's a bunch of things happening that create uh, the numbers that appear on that scoreboard. So by focusing too much on the scoreboard and just presuming that an acceptable number on the scoreboard means by definition that your process is okay, his point was, no, that's that's not okay. It's not okay for management, executive management in this particular case, to be incurious about a process that leads to the scoreboard. So it sounds like 45,001 is addressing this particular phenomenon, or at least I think this is a reasonable analogy for the phenomenon. So could you comment a little bit about um, what it's doing in that particular area? Because of the, the four or five things that you mentioned, my view would be this is probably the most critical piece. That's right, Pat. And um, I think that management and even workers have always been driven by accidents and measured their performance by accidents or lack of them. Uh, As an inspector, I'd often come across those people would say, well, yeah, it's been like that. You know, it looks dangerous, but it's not killed anybody. So what do we need to do about it? It's not happened yet. And this is the, this is the fault uh, of uh, looking at lagging indicators. They are no prediction of what's going to happen in the next moment. The way that 45,001 ties top management into being curious is they, it is specified that top management, uh, and this is the, mind, the controlling mind and body of an organization, it may be the top management team, it may be one individual, but it's those who are actually directing activities. Those top management uh, have to be accountable for what happens in their organization. And now top management can delegate responsibility for delivering implementation and for reporting on performance, but they've got to be accountable for what happens. They've also got to show that they've got a supporting culture and a number of other things. There are, in the standard, there are 13 particular actions that top management have to take. So what also I would say about this, Pat, is that this standard is going to be a a game changer insofar as because if they want the organisation wishes to go for registration and certification, top management is going to have to demonstrate that they have some hands-on knowledge about those 13 activities that they have to demonstrate. 
So this is going to be a challenge, not only for top management, but it's going to be a challenge for auditors as well to challenge top management and to go, actually go and interview or to record or account or verify that top management are performing in the, in the, the way that I said that they have to. More mature organisations look at proactive indicators, and I'm sure all the listeners will know proactive or leading indicators, the concept of that term. The standard itself actually specifies that performance measures have to be measurable, have to be set. So now this is the first standard that talks about key performance indicators. That's something that we can talk about further down the line, but in my experience, there can be a, a significant risk in setting too many indicators. BP at Texas City, I believe, were measuring over 2,000 indicators and could not actually determine which of those indicators are going to lead to an explosion, which you know in the US uh, a lot of people were killed in Texas City. So, in my experience, uh, from a strategic point of view, Six indicators is sufficient. Three leading and perhaps three flagging indicators. Uh, and the emphasis has got to be on the leading indicators. Those are going to be the proactive ones. Those are going to be the ones that prevent accidents. And so this approach that Australian presenter has flagged up of only looking at lagging indicators it is a clear indication that organisations don't really care. They just don't get what health and safety is about. It's not about measuring the, what's gone wrong. It's about measuring what you can put right before it goes wrong. I'll sum it up in that way. Right. I, I, I think those are great comments and uh, sum up nicely uh, some of the challenges ahead as, as organisations embrace uh, 45,001 moving forward. If, if you accept the idea that ultimately uh, success in occupational health and safety and really any aspect of a corporation's endeavors, whether it's uh, profitability, uh, quality, um, you name it, it needs to start at the top and there needs to be uh, realistic and meaningful things that uh, executives are plugged into and um, certainly just stewarding to a scoreboard of figures that are divorced from or separated from process this lawyer had even gone as far as to say that um, executives need to be knowledgeable specifically in the major risks that their organizations um, are likely to produce. Um, so it's not just okay to say, as, as you mentioned, uh, you can delegate certain things down the line, but um, uh, his comments were around the idea that uh, executives themselves need to know the nature of the risks that uh, their organizations create and uh, that the tangible things that are done to uh, identify those risks and, and mitigate those risks. It's not okay in his view. Um, and I think this is a, a view shared with many, many in, in the safety business and uh, the managerial stream as well, that yes, you can delegate a bunch of operational stuff down the line. I mean, that's just the nature of large, large organizations that you need lots of people to do lots of things. You need some, the right mix of generalists and specialists. But um, the days where executives are unplugged from the actual operational risks and things that people may face each day, those, those days appeared to be numbered. Yes, you, you cannot distance yourself from what is actually happening in an organisation. 
Tremendous. This has been fabulous. Chris, finally, where can listeners go to get more information about you, your organizations, and and available resources? I know that there's um, a significant number of resource uh, documents that you have available for people to read. You have your uh, LinkedIn site as well and some other resources. Let's talk a little bit about where people can get some more details on 45,001. So um, if people are just going to Google my name, it's Chris J. Ward. My website is imsglobalstandards.com. That makes sense, Pat. My LinkedIn group, Pat, is titled EHSQ Professionals ISO 45001. And if people don't want to put all that in, they look for LinkedIn group 831-9963. Nice. Yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of resources there. I've had a, a browse at the website and the uh, the LinkedIn group, and uh, there's quite a bit of material there. Chris, I'd like to thank you for this conversation. There's been uh, a great deal of, of really good detailed information here about how to get involved with the process, the background of uh, ISO, the organization, and, and the 45,001 standard itself, its own uh, and it, its lineage. I think all that was really valuable. Some of the practical steps of implementation. Uh, this was uh, a very good session. Uh, thank you. If you like what you heard today, or if you've liked previous podcasts, or have interesting subject matter that our audience can learn from, we want to hear from you. Check our show notes at safopedia.com slash podcast. You can email me at pat.robinson at hsebestpractices.com or contact me on Twitter at patrobinson2005.